0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit chalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushdoony. Copyright 1971-2007 Mark R. Rushdoony, Chalcedon Ross House Books Chapter 11 Utopia The New City of Man Section 1 Humanism and Utopia. The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, Romanticism, and every other movement of the modern mind have one common characteristic anti Christianity. As Santillana observed of early and later Renaissance figures, what came under criticism was the central dogmatic complex built around original sin, inherited corruption, and divine atonement. The humanism which had saturated the Church manifested itself in numerous ways. When Nicholas of Cusa, born 1401, dreamed of reconciling Christianity with Mohammedanism, he was simply applying the logic of the age. Paracelsus, 1493-1541, to saw a great becoming unfolding itself in man. As Santillano wrote, quote, The religious emotion of Paracelsus centers on growth and delicate unfolding from the womb of time. He teaches respect for the divinely appointed moment, for the hour of God, that the physician alchemist alone can discern. It is only in such a scheme, on the other hand, that things can be conceived as really independent beings, having their reason and their principle of growth in themselves. Gone is the neat hierarchy of intelligible causes, ending up in the already achieved design in the mind of the unmoved mover, there there is here a true becoming and also protean metamorphosis. In the great chain of being, God and man are mystically equivalent. I under God in his office, God under me in mine. This might sound like satanic pride, but it is a mystical intuition which is to be more strongly and paradoxically expressed later by Angelus Celesius in many of his doggerel couplets. I know that without me God could not live a second. Turned if I were to nothing, he'd give up the ghost in despair. Basic to the Renaissance perspective was the concept of a finite God, limited and non-determinative in nature. The corollary of this premise was a belief in an infinite universe. As Giordano Bruno (1548-1600) wrote, quote, I hold the universe to be infinite, as being the effect of infinite divine power and goodness of which any finite world would have been unworthy. The reference to infinite divine power met the requirement of logic and science. The infinite universe was the product of an infinite divine power. A source or cause commensurate with its effect. But beyond this formal presence, the divine power had no role. With some, it was absorbed into its effect. With others, as with later deism, it remained as a now obsolete cause. An infinite universe means that man, the crown of the universe, is infinite also. Renaissance man saw himself as a new god in process of becoming. Chapman's Boussy d'Ambois felt shock at the realization that he could die and was dying. Quote, Is my body then but penetrable flesh, and must my mind follow my blood? Can my divine part add no aid to the earthly in extremity End quote. in any other era for a man to express amazement at his mortality would be ridiculous in this Renaissance play. It is thoroughly credible and in keeping with the temper of the day, the bussy dombois type of man of the Renaissance type man of the Renaissance has been accorded the veneration his philosophy called for. his genius has been the subject of adulation, and his egoism has been taken at face value. A telling example of this is the pathetic and impotent figure of Leonardo da Vinci. A chronic dabbler and procrastinator, Leonardo found it difficult to finish anything. His notes occasionally record good observations, his jotting of the comments of wiser men, but he was unable to bring these gleamings to focus. His one area of real ability was painting, or more accurately drawing, but here his total production was limited and haunted by the spectre of his weakness and impotence. But because of his singular avoidance of any personal religious expression, this man has been especially highly esteemed, although amusingly, the experts find it difficult to establish what was great about him. But Renaissance man being, by self-definition, a species of divinity, it was impossible to regard his actions as folly. What had been folly was now tragedy. The dramatic concern for tragedy, most notable in England, is a telling illustration of this fact. Chapman's Bussy Gombois is one of many examples more explicit than most. For a man's divine part to follow his blood into death or disgrace was tragedy now, not sin or folly. The Renaissance also planted the seeds of Romanticism. If a man is a god, then his loves must be godlike. As a result, the Renaissance poet converted his love into a goddess, the divine Laura, Cynthia or Jane. Thus Michelangelo could declare quote, The power of one fair face spurs me to heaven end quote, in a sonnet, and of his love filled thinking he could add quote, My conceptions high become divine. End quote. The woman he called fair lady, proud and heavenly, a description made necessary by his own self exaltation, for how can a man shot through with neoplatonist divinity love anything other than a woman who is heavenly or divine? Later, Shelley and Byron were to call every slut they took up with a goddess, until they left her, when she became a witch. A witch, after all, represents a kind of supernatural power also. Shakespeare, in his sonnets, equates his love's favour, and there are indications that both a man and a woman were the objects of his love, with a religious experience which lights up his life and makes him rich. Sonnets 29, 30, 66, 106 and others reveal this plainly. Another aspect of man's new divinity was utopianism. Christian orthodoxy produces no utopian dreams or plans. In God's law word, the believer already has God's purposes for the future declared, and the way thereto, faith and God's law word, are plainly set forth. The believer moves towards God's predestined future with confidence. But the new God, man, must create his own decree, and predestine his own future, and, as a result, he must draw up plans for a utopia. Utopianism is thus a renunciation of God's sovereignty and eternal decree in favour of a new God, man, and a new decree, man's plan. The new city of man is set forth, and the power is then sought to institute this decree. Section 2. Thomas More The term utopianism comes, of course, from Thomas More's ideal society. More was made a saint in 1935 by the Church of Rome, an ironic fact in that few saints have been more subversive towards the Church. Santillana's comment is to the point. Qua, Men like Erasmus, Collet, and More were first and foremost apostles of culture, the reformers of the educational system, and the founders of the modern English school system, of which St. Paul's was the first example. More compared the school to the wooden horse in which were concealed armed Greeks for the destruction of barbarous Troy. But the Troy that these new Greek scholars were bent on wrecking was the stronghold of medieval learning. End quote. It is not surprising when Moore's works are examined that Roman Catholic scholars tend to discourage too close an analysis of Moore. We are told that, in a certain sense, Moore is unknowable. Moreover, we are told that, quote, men like Moore are a threat and a scandal to the single-mindedly earnest, to the true believers, end quote, and to the single-minded absolutists. This should intimidate weak-minded scholars from calling attention to attention to Moore's inanities. Moreover, to prevent us from taking Moore at his word, we are told that his work represents subtle wit and irony, as well as satire. More to the point is Van Riesen's comment on utopia and its intense and absurd earnestness. Quote, One is amazed that the pen of Moore, noted for its spirited wit, did not drop from his hand from sheer tediousness. End quote. Moore's utopia was also dishonest. The book is devoted to a passionate plea for the abolition of private property and the adoption of communism. The book, however, concludes with a vague disclaimer of this portion. In brief, Moore wanted the liberty to preach a doctrine without any penalty, in case such should, in- such should ensue. Moore's wit is not in evidence in his writings. It was often remarkable in his speech. His death was, notable, was noble and truly heroic, but at this point we must agree with Green. His death was a heroic gesture in defence of the autonomy of conscience. Precisely, Moore died as the authentic humanist saint rather than as a Christian martyr. Moore's utopia is clearly anti-Christian as well as hostile to the Church. For Moore, the normative is derived not from God but from nature. (coughs) In Utopia... They define virtue to be a life ordered according to nature. The phrase is derived from Cicero's De Finibus, Book 4. But the nature more has in mind is not the nature the Romantics later had in mind, it is a nature governed, moulded and totally controlled by statist man. Manuel's analysis is to the point. The order of happiness is within human capacity, but it is not innate. Thus, utopian man is not natural, he has been fashioned by institutions, but the result is not unnatural since the founders of utopia utilized benign instincts and repressed harmful ones through education and the dictates of the law. In contrast to our contemporary absorption with the problem as a major source of dolorous psychic disturbance, the utopian conception of repression envisages a process that is neither very painful nor very complicated. As a consequence, the social environment in which every newborn utopian first sees the day is uniformly pleasurable, and his whole existence will be passed in the same mild emotional climate. Tranquility is the highest good. Since only moderate pleasures are deemed to be pleasures at all, there is nothing to disrupt the order of calm felicity once it has been instituted as long as the world endures. Moore's utopia is not even subject to the natural dec- decay that Plato considered inevitable for his republic. Moore was thus a very modern figure. His God and nature was the state, man's recreator, preserver and providence. Moore absorbed man into a totally imminent one, the state. Thus unity was for him the supreme virtue, and serenity in that oneness. His utopia was a communist regime in which man was manipulated into place, and the thought of any division in terms of religious faith was anathema. In terms of this, Moore's hatred of anything that made for separatism was intense. Himself hungry for wealth, he hated wealth in others. In his utopia, he wrote of gold, quote, But they make chamber pots and other common vessels for both their dining halls and homes out of gold and silver, end quote. From this passage, Lenin derived his famous idea of using gold to build public urinals in the Marxist utopia. But what of Moore's own death for autonomy of conscience? How does this jibe with his totalitarianism? Moore, like most humanistic intellectuals, saw himself as one of the elite rulers of the total order. After all, Edward Bellamy, 1850-1898, then Looking Backwards, 1888, called for an equal annual income of $4,000 per person, so that the blessed of men as well as the least received an equal amount. One exception was made by Bellamy, the writer who could name his own royalties and live in wealth. Moore denied the citizens of Utopia the right to treat religion seriously enough to divide over it, but he retained the right for himself to die for conscience' sake. He had not been inconsistent earlier in burning Protestants at the sake, at the stake, nor in defending the practice. His unitary state, England, failed him in that the monarch used the unitary powers for his own ends. Earlier, More had warned a devoutly Catholic Henry VIII from too great an obedience to the Pope, but he could not prevent Henry from following his royal will. Henry, the great hope of Renaissance scholars, was, for better or worse, his own man. Section 3. Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, to 1626, perhaps more than any other man, influenced the new view of science. In his Novum Organum, Aphorism 124, he wrote, quote, Truth, therefore, and utility are here the very same things, and works themselves are greater value as pledges of truth than as contributing to the comforts of life. Bacon denied the primacy of ideas. Instead of approaching the world from the perspective of a philosophy, a worldview or a theory, Bacon proposed that the new science let the facts determine science and a pragmatic concept of truth then be forthcoming as the theory. Bacon's position, the priority of factuality and the pragmatic standard of truth, represented no less a philosophy than the scholasticism he opposed. Plato had held to the priority of the idea. Aristotle had tried to maintain a dialectical tension between form and matter, idea and brute fact. Bacon stood Plato on his head and asserted the priority of the fact and derived, ostensibly, his truth from the fact. All three positions are equally philosophical. The idea that facts are both prior and self-interpreting is as much a form of faith as Plato's, Aristotle's and Aquinas' positions had been. Like them, Bacon tried to remake the world in terms of his own idea. In philosophy, Bacon clearly pointed out the direction of Comte and Dewey. In science, his position led to the Royal Society. No less than Descartes' Bacon's position was governed by philosophical presuppositions, which he termed science. Thus, in Bacon's New Atlantis, the world of religion is left largely undisturbed, as are economic and social questions. Bacon was not interested in the communistic extravagances of other utopians. His hope for man's future rested in science, or more accurately, in a state-controlled science. Bacon was, in fact, clearly critical of Moore's morality, speaking critically of, quote, A feigned commonwealth where the married couple are permitted, before they contract, to see one another naked, end quote. The heart of Bacon's utopia was Solomon's house, the college of the state scientists, a state-created and state-controlled scientific body. The purpose of this body is stated thus, quote, The end of our foundation is the knowledge of causes, and secret motion of all things, and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire to the effecting of all things possible. As Lewis Mumford observed, Long before all the components of the invisible machine were consciously assembled, Francis Bacon, in his New Atlantis, was quick not merely to anticipate its benefits, but to outline the conditions for its achievement. The application of science to all human affairs, to the effecting of all things possible. (coughs) According to Fry, Bacon in his New Atlantis anticipates Marx by assuming that the most significant of social factors is technological productivity. Polak sees a direct strain which leads on from Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, from which the Royal Society in England descended in a straight line. Towards ideals of technical progress which later blended with the American creed and th- finally may lead to an enslaving technocracy. Sears observes quote, Beginning with Bacon's New Atlantis, or perhaps earlier, there has been a significant change of emphasis in the version in the visions of utopia. The older writings, as we have noted earlier, concerned themselves heavily with moral and political factors. Gradually, there has been an increasing preoccupation with man's ability to manipulate his environment and rely upon technological devices. At one extreme, this has resulted in the absorbing faith in science as a guarantee against any emergency we may create for ourselves. At the other, there has developed an impressive literature of satire and disillusionment, at least some of whose writers are better versed in science than the uncritical optimists." These discerning comments help to bring to focus a central aspect of Bacon's utopianism and of a great strand of thought after him. The one great one is now totally imminent. It is mankind organized as the state, its instrument in issuing a new ultimate decree, a new predestination for man and nature is technology and science science is thus cast into a messianic role and becomes progressively basic to utopianism. Section 4. Campanella. Tommaso Campanella, 1568 to 1639, a Dominican a Dominican monk more interested in physics than in theology was in his City of the Sun still more concerned with politics than science although the scientific aspect was present. Andrews wrote of City of the Sun, quote, It formulated for the first time a complete socialistic system on a scientific foundation, and, in France especially, furnished a model for later ideal communities, end quote. In Campanella's ideal order, all things are socialised or communized, including marriage, which is completely governed by the state in terms of scientific breeding. The historic biblical pattern of marriage is condemned, as is private property, as leading to self-love. But when we have taken away self-love, there remains only love for the state. Crime is abolished by abolishing traditional marriages and private property. Moreover, the race is managed for the good of the Commonwealth and not of private individuals, and the magistrates must be obeyed. For children are bred for the preservation of the species and not for individual pleasure, as St. Thomas also asserts. And quoted later, and thus they distribute male and female breeders of the best natures according to philosophical rules. End quote. And why not? For Campanella said, quote, The world is a great animal, and we live within as it worms, as it. And we live within it as worms live within us. End quote. Campanella was, curiously, imprisoned by the state and defended by the church. The King of Spain imprisoned him for 27 years. Pope Urban VIII defended him and later gave him refuge for a time. The basic form of utopianism was now shaped for modern man to apply to the social order. The state, or better, the scientific socialist state, is the great and ultimate order, the order of unity and man's saviour. Because the one is now totally imminent, there is no escape from its truth, nor appeal against it. Truth being incarnate and present in the form of the state, man in any conflict with the state can only be evil. Section 5. Hobbes, Locke, Harrington Hobbes's utopianism made this point. Thomas Hobbes, 1588-1679, wrote in his Leviathan, 1651, wrote his Leviathan as a vindication of the absolute rights of whatever government happens to be in power. The state incarnates true order. In Hobbes' words, the law of nations and the law of nature is the same thing. The state comprehends all orders, so that, quote, a church such as a, such a one as is capable to command, to judge, absolve, condemn, or do any other act is the same thing with a civil commonwealth, end quote. Nothing can exist outside of this one, the state. The great condemnation of heresy for Hobbes was that it is, quote, a private opinion a, a obstinately maintained contrary to the opinion which the public person, that is to say, representative of the commonwealth, hath commanded to be taught. End quote. Moreover, quote, heretics are none but private men that stubbornly defend some doctrine, prohibited by their lawful sovereigns. End quote. The state in Hobbes's order is the only good, man is virtually nothing. Hobbes brings us to the brink of total environmentalism. John Locke placed man within that realm by his psychology. Locke, 1632-1704, to 1704, in his An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, with his Tabula Rasa concept, reduced the mind to a passive blank sheet on which an elite planner or teacher could write the future. Man was now a passive creature, acted on rather than acting and the state became progressively the active creating agent. Another major contribution to utopianism had come already in the concept of economic man and economic determinism, a note which appeared in James Harrington, 1611-1677, in his Oceana. Its fundamental thesis was simple, dominion is property. Oliver Cromwell recognised the basic secularism of Harrington's thesis, Harrington held that power is property, hence society should be reordered in terms of a realistic recognition of this fact. In terms of this, Harrington wanted a government of laws, not of men. There was nothing new in Harrington's thesis, as Baxter pointed out. Men have always known of the power property gives. The issue for some centuries was this. Would power be governed by the higher power of God? The whole concern of Christendom had been the subjection of all powers to Christ. The novelty in Harrington's thesis was that power was again being paganized, freed from the restraint of the higher power of the triune God. A new higher power had come into the picture, the sovereign power of the scientific socialist state which itself moves eventually to possess property and become the focal point of all power.
1: For Christ and His Kingdom.